Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 19, The Gunslinger. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, but today a novel, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. But before we get into The Gunslinger, we're going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? Okay, welcome to The Corner. All right, we're talking Stephen King again today. We've done that a little bit in the past with 112263. Uh, and, you know, we, we're a horror podcast. Stephen King's often horror. So I guess I was curious, what are you, some of your guys's, what's your favorite book or story or movie of his? Or like, what's your first exposure to Stephen King? Um, what's your relationship with Stephen King, I guess? Well, Mr. King and I, I like to call him Steve. We are besties. We've been besties since I'm about mm, 12 or 13 years old when I was allowed to check out his books without my parents knowing at the public library. Um, I think that my very favorite things by Stephen King are his uh, his short story anthologies or novellas. Um, my very favorite work by him has always been Different Seasons. That's probably my favorite. But also um, things like Graveyard Shift and Four Past Midnight definitely get honorable mentions for me. Um, I don't know what it is about a good short story, but it just there was a couple of them that really got me thinking about creepy stuff at night. So definitely lost some sleep over those stories. For me, um, I, I like a lot of Stephen King stuff and... Uh, I was maybe a little bit late to the game on it. I didn't get into his books and things until, uh, I guess, not too long ago, maybe a decade or so ago. But uh, anyways, I guess some of my favorite stuff of his, I, uh, I apart from the Gunslinger and the Dark Tower series, I think I would have to call that my favorite Stephen King stuff. Uh, but I also really like The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Maybe even this might be slightly blasphemic but i maybe like dr sleep a little more so um and then he also did a, a trilogy recently um with richard chismar uh, as the gwendy uh, gwendy's button box trilogy and there are it's three three books they're all pretty short though i think you could combine them all to be one book and uh you know i'm not saying it's like amazing but i i liked it quite a bit um and that he that was only within the last i don't know five years or so five or six years um but yeah anyways those are some of my favorite things of his um for me i think my very favorite stephen king thing is probably eleven twenty two sixty three, which we've already talked about so i'm not going to bring it up again because that'd be kind of boring so what I'll say is my latest Stephen King thing that I like, uh, aside from everything else that's been said, because I really do like The Shining and Dr. Sleep and The Stand and all the Dark Tower books, uh, but the latest Stephen King thing that I really like is the Mr. Mercedes series, uh, which has three books, and kind of one of the characters that ends up being the star of it is this character Holly Gibney who I think Stephen King has kind of fallen in love with because he put her in another one of his books called The Outsider, and he has an upcoming novel where she's 
actually the titular character this time. It's just called Holly. So that's the the newest Stephen King thing that I'm really into that I like. I, I really like his portrayal of the character Holly Gibney. Check that out if you haven't. I have not read that many Stephen King books. Not nearly as many as I would have liked to read. But after just reading Gunslinger for this podcast episode, that is my favorite now. So Gunslinger. And I would like to continue the series. I think for me, my absolute favorite Stephen King work is the Dark Tower series overall. Um, The thing that kind of got me more into it than anything else was The Shining. Because oddly enough, back in the mid-90s, they were doing a remake of The Shining as a um, made-for-TV miniseries. Because Stephen King was famously not happy with Stephen Kubrick's film, which... uh, Stanley Kubrick's film, sorry. Anyway, uh, which I I liked, but I can understand why he didn't like it, having read The Shining and seeing how much more detailed and involved the characters are. Um, I can see how a lot of that got left out entirely for Kubrick's film. So anyway, they were making a big thing out of they were going to do this miniseries that was going to do The Shining right. And I imagine there's probably like one person out there somewhere listening who's like, I've seen both and it was horrible. And I get that because the production value and the artistic merit of it is a lot lower than miniseries, but it does cover the series more. It does cover what the book covered more in depth. And I really kind of liked it, but that's the thing that got me into it in the first place um, is getting into Stephen King stuff. That shining miniseries got me into the book. And so I really like the shining and I really like Dr. Sleep, the sequel And, uh, yeah, I, and then the dark tower series after that. So that's, those are kind of like the top of my list, but I also, as Matt has been rereading or reading rather the, uh, Hodges trilogy of Mr. Mercedes finders, keepers and end of watch. I've been reading through those two and about finished with end of watch. And that's been really good too. So I'm kind of curious. I didn't know he had another book coming out that involved Holly Gibney. So I'm kind of curious to see what that ends up being like. Well, cool. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Stephen King has so much stuff out there. I feel like there's, I mean, he, he's known for his horror, but he has so much that spans many genres. And I think there's kind of something for everybody there. Just with how many books he's written, like not, not all of them are, are hits for me. Uh, You know, some of the stuff I like better than others, but there, you know, some of them are just kind of perfect for me. So that's kind of great. So Thanks, Mr. King, for all you do, and uh, keep writing. Thanks. All right, and then on to our novel that we're covering this week. We're covering The Gunslinger. That was originally published as a novel in 1982, but however, it was published as a series of five short stories between 1978 and 1981 in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Eventually, it was included as one of his previous novels in... uh, one of his few novels. So basically uh, one of his novel publications lists other works by him and it listed the gunslinger, which at that time was not something that was easily available. And so demand suddenly skyrocketed and it got it into print as a singular novel. So each of the chapters in the gunslinger, if they have kind of their own like start finish finite feel to them, that's why. So for this, we're reading the gunslinger, the revised edition. 
Once Stephen King had finished the full Dark Tower series, he'd always maintained that he had looked at it all as one singular book. And so normally, if he finished writing a book, he'd go through and do some revisions on the whole thing afterward and make sure everything was consistent. But with the Dark Tower series, since it spanned over several decades and him getting the whole thing together, there were some inconsistencies about who characters were and what ideas went where. And so he decided when releasing the final three books, which he released all very close together, that he would do a revision of the first novel to put it more in line with where the series ended up. So that's what we're reading today is The Gunslinger, the revised edition. For you at home, if you haven't read this novel before, you don't really need to worry about trying to make sure that you have the right edition because at this point, you would have to go out of your way to get the original copy. Certainly, if you're listening to it on an audiobook where there's, I don't think it's readily available anywhere outside of pirating it to get the original audiobook version. Um, and then we've already mentioned some other works of Stephen King's, but, um, you know, of course, there's things like The Stand, Pet Cemetery, Misery, Carrie, It's, and of course, as we talked about, 112263, which we covered earlier in the season, so feel free to go back and check that out. We even have some references to The Dark Tower that we discussed at the end of that episode, so... As far as the back of the book description, uh, here it goes for that. In a desolate reality, one that mirrors our own in frightening ways, a lone and haunting figure known only as Roland makes his way across the endless sands in pursuit of a sinister dark-robed mystery man. Roland is the last of his kind, a gunslinger, charged with protecting whatever goodness and light remains in this world. A world that moved on, as they say, and the only way he can possibly hope to save everything is to first outwit and confront this man in black, then make him divulge his many arcane secrets. For despite the countless miles he's already traversed, Roland knows these will merely be his initial steps on his spellbinding and soul-shattering quest to locate the mystical nexus of all worlds, all the universe, the Dark Tower. So as mentioned, The Gunslinger is the first volume in a eight-book series called The Dark Tower series. Uh, we are not analyzing the whole series on whether or not it is horror, just this first book. There is a spoiler warning, of course, for anything in The Gunslinger, but also there will likely be minor spoilers for the rest of The Dark Tower series, although we'll try to keep those more to a minimum, but uh, just be prepared there is that possibility. So as far as going to the intent of Stephen King as the writer of this, I have a couple quotes here from a couple different interviews. Uh, so one, he did an interview with Collider around the time that the Dark Tower movie came out, uh, which we're going to handle Voldemort style and have it as the movie that shall not be named because it was not good. But anyway, it was that bad. Really? I got really excited <sighs> when it was. Is it Idris Elba? He did a good job in it. Yeah, it was a great actor choice. It just wasn't a great anything else choice. <laughs> I saw clips of it on YouTube after I read the book, and I didn't even want to watch the movie from the clips. Like, it's just nothing like I imagined. I heard it combined yeah. a, several of the books. It wasn't really just, I don't know. It felt like I, they I, tried I to condense things. it all into one thing it was like its own story that kind of had some of the loose elements of the whole entire series and it just was like the so it's more like it was inspired by the dark tower it was fan fiction dark tower Almost, oh that's yeah. sad 
it's like you put the gunslinger and the seventh book in the series, the dark tower, which, so that's the name of the seventh book in the dark tower series. It's called the dark tower. So it's like you put that, the gunslinger, and then like the first half of the third novel in a blender. And then, yeah, tried to make that into a final story. I, yeah, I, I feel like all the actors in it did a good job, but I feel like the way that the story was written, they weren't even playing the characters from the books. Like, you've got Matthew McConaughey playing the man in black, but not really. He's just the name. You've got Idris Elba playing the gunslinger, but again, not really, just some other character. And just, it, it is a mess. I, I don't know that I'd say it's an awful movie if you've never seen it or read any of the books before, but I just, as a fan of the series, it just didn't do anything for me just goes to show that perfect probably matthew mcconaughey is perfectly cast as randall flag or the man in black or whoever whatever you want to call him and probably idris elba is nearly perfectly cast as roland but just didn't work <laughs> i can't imagine matthew mcconaughey as anything but all right all right all right like I, that <laughs> shocks me I'm, i might have to watch it now just because you said that okay but if you want to see a good example of matthew mcconaughey's acting you should check out the first season of True Detective because I thought oh, that was that brilliant. Worth anything. Okay, well, yeah, because I have that. seen that. Have you seen Frailty? Because I really loved him in that too, which, by the way, that is horror. I don't care what anybody says, but I digress. You know, we had a request to do that once, so maybe. Oh, we'll it's so good. It's so good. But anyway, I had a quote for you, so I'm going to read that now. <laughs> <laughs> So he said in the interview, again, talking about the Dark Tower series, uh, an interview about the movie, he said, you have to keep in mind that all the books that I've written, the Dark Tower fans are the most zealous, the most fervent of all, but they make a small subgroup of the people who read books like The Shining and Misery, that kind of thing. So, you know, you're an acquired taste, their fantasy. So that's kind of a longer quote, but getting to the point of him saying again, that his view is that it was fantasy series. And then there's another interview that he did with kingfanwa.tripod.com, which looked like a fairly older interview, probably from back around when he released the final book in the series. But uh, he said, The Dark Tower started when I was in college. I wrote the first chapters of The Gunslinger on a ream of paper that I got from the library where I worked. At that time in my life, I was such a dedicated writer that I just couldn't stand to see a ream of blank paper, and I wanted to write something. I've been thinking for a long time that I would like to write a big fantasy as very much influenced by the Lord of the Rings. And then further in that same interview, he also says, I think there are a lot of people out there who respond in the other books to the idea of supernatural or fantasy elements when they're wedded closely to reality. I really think that's been a lot of the success of books like The Dead Zone. A book like Misery really isn't a supernatural novel at all or Gerald's Game, but with fantasy... You have a certain hardcore audience that's very, very dedicated, and a lot of other people just say, well, I'm not sure that that is going to be my cup of tea. So another thing that's worth mentioning in term, along with all of that is that obviously Stephen King's been very clear about the fact that one of his major influences in writing this series was The Lord of the Rings, uh, but also, as well as that, mentioning uh, Sergi, Sergio Leone's The Man With No Name trilogy, specifically The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So you have this influence that's coming from the fantasy side with Lord of the Rings, and you have this influence that's coming from the Western side, 
And so I think those are very evident in the final product, but that those are the leading things that at least he claims as inspiration and not really sourcing anything that would be considered horror in his coming up with the series. So um, another thing that you may know if you've followed any of our episodes where we've talked about movies that are adapted from books or we've done books in general is if you go to the website goodreads.com, they allow any user to write what genre they think a book is a part of, which allows for some good crowdsourced reception data on how people are viewing the series. So when you look at The Gunslinger specifically, you end up with... uh, 55.4% saying that it is a fantasy book, uh, 11% saying it's a science fiction book, and then along with those same things, 5% saying it's sci-fi fantasy, uh, 1.45% saying it's dark fantasy. So that's already you're sitting there at a little over 70% looking at it as a fantasy story. Uh, Aside from all of that, you have 14.6% saying it's horror, And then you get 3.54% saying it's Western, 2.46% saying dystopia, 2.27% saying adventure, 1.86% saying post-apocalyptic, 1.74% saying thriller, and 0.72% saying mystery. So while horror is the most cited, the second most cited genre for this book, uh, predominantly most people are viewing it as fantasy. Another thing worth noting is that Audible's site lists it as supernatural, suspense, fantasy, and dark horror. And then, for the hell of it, (laughs) I looked at what the meta tags were for the movie, and for that you had um, seven sites calling it action, six sites calling it fantasy, adventure, or four sites calling it adventure, four sites calling it sci-fi, one calling it science fantasy, uh, one calling it western, one calling it thriller, one calling it suspense, and... Amazon Prime being the only site that listed the Dark Tower movie as horror. Uh, As far as search trends go, Google and Wikipedia, there was no noticeable search trends that skewed towards uh, higher searches in October, which might sometimes indicate that a work is horror. So um, most of the data suggesting that horror is in there, but it's not the predominant genre. All right. So, what did everybody think? Is The Gunslinger, the first book in the Dark Tower series, horror? Absolutely not. Nope. Not even a chance. Not even a little bit. Yeah, I'm going with not horror as well. I'm going to say not horror. Not horror, but fantasy. And I got to agree. So, that's five for five. I also say it is not horror. Okay, well, getting into this, I think one of the things that's interesting about the Dark Tower series as a whole is kind of summed up a little bit in some meta-commentary in the fifth book in the series, which this isn't a spoiler to read this section, but I thought that the conversation was good. Um, So in Wolves of the Kala, you have Roland the Gunslinger, who's talking with some of his uh, travel companions. And uh, so you've got this, this quote. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's interesting. So he says, such stories are called fairy tales, Roland mused. Yeah, Eddie replied. There were no fairies in this one, though. No, Eddie agreed. That's more like a category name than anything else. In our world, you got your mystery and suspense stories, your science fiction stories, your westerns, your fairy tales. Get it? Yes, Roland said. Do people in your world always want only one story flavor at a time, only one taste in their mouths? I guess that's close enough, Susanna said. 
Does no one eat stew? Roland asked. Sometimes it's supper, I guess, Eddie said, but when it comes to entertainment, we do tend to stick with one flavor at a time and don't let any one thing touch another thing on your plate. Although it sounds kind of boring when you put it that way. So there's my dramatic reading. <laughs> it was good. Excellently done. But anyway, just getting to the point of that the Dark Tower series has always been a mashup of several genres, which is kind of funny because the first movie that we ever covered for this show was Detention, which is also a mashup of a lot of different genres. So there are a lot of different genres represented in the Dark Tower series, and that was sort of Stephen King's meta-commentary on the fact that it doesn't have to be just one thing, because of course that was the criticism that he'd already faced a good 20-30 years on the series leading up to that conversation being published in Wolves of the Kala. So, one of the first questions I wanted to get into is what would you say are the top five genres represented in this book? I don't know if these all count as genres, but overall, this was absolutely fantasy for me. Um, I'd even be willing to go as far as to agree with the whole dystopian uh, post-apocalyptic thing. It is very dark in this weird existential way, and there's this tiny little sprinkling of sci-fi at the very end. The jury is still out on it. I don't know that I could define it in five. It's just, for me, it's just, it's this weird mashup of just fantasy and existential dread. It's okay if you don't have five. I just wanted to see what people thought in general. I'm going to throw action in there. There was many action scenes. That's fair. I think I would call it probably dark fantasy, maybe a little more than regular, than your garden variety fantasy. I think at least this first book for me, uh, Western is at the top for me. It's just like it's it's so much a Western, I guess, for me that I, I can't not include that. What made it Western for you? Because for me, the only Western I got out of it was like the gunslinger's attire and the fact that he was he had six shooters. Um, I guess, yeah, definitely those things. And uh, just uh, probably a lot of the first half of the book because you know he goes through the town of toll he meets the like uh farmer out in the in the desert um and uh i guess like i can see the like quintessential little western town when he goes into toll like he's walking down the main street and goes into the saloon and you know talks with alley and everything like i don't know all that's i, I guess i it just feels, excuse me, it just feels very Western to me. Interesting, because when I was reading, I was getting more of like a Depression era Dust Bowl vibe, like a carnival kind of vibe from it. That's what my mind's eye was seeing. Interesting to hear your take on that. Mine was a lot like yours, Joe, especially at the end of the scene with Tull, where he, you know, spoilers, but he kills everybody. <laughs> it definitely gives me like the uh, the outlaw decimating a town vibe. I think I would agree with that read as a whole as far as the genre designations. But yeah, I for me, it's always read very Western too. I guess just again, sort of the, the gunslinger, the cowboy, you know, six guns on the hip, uh, going into the small town, the piano player, you know, sauntering up to the bar, just all that had always a very Western flavor to me, even if the rest of the 
the rest of the book itself doesn't necessarily, but because that was right at the beginning, that set a tone for me. Side note, I want to know why all these Western saloons only know how to do covers of Beatles songs. <laughs> so it sounds like for the most part, everyone predominantly looked at this story. Like the the main genre people picked out was fantasy. What is that accurate to say? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's fantasy. Would you say that the five different story sections, so there's the gunslinger, the way station, the oracle in the mountains, the slow mutants, and the gunslinger and the dark man, would you say that all of those, each of those individual sections also has fantasy as its main genre, or would you say that any of those individual sections would, you would classify as horror first? I don't think anything read as horror to me. I mean, there were some pretty intense and dark points, but it never once occurred to me that this was a horror novel. In fact, apart from like the inherent writing style and, you know, the proverbial wordsmithing, I would have never thought that this was Stephen King. And I feel like I've read a pretty hefty amount of Stephen King. I agree with that. I t no offense to Stephen King, but I think that I liked it more because it didn't feel like Stephen King. Oh, he's because, terribly offended. Terribly uh, offended. I'm sure he cares about what some random girl <laughs> in Ohio thinks. I don't know. It was a good change of pace from his normal writing style. But anyway, um, to answer the question, I, I guess the only section I would call mildly horror is the slow mutants. Because, you know, the stakes are high and they're being chased by zombies. Cave zombies. Yeah, I think you could you could definitely interpret that section as horror if it was maybe like I agree that that's like the most closely related to horror, but the way that it's written too, it almost doesn't feel like horror. It just feels like more of an action sequence. I don't know what you think about that. That scene reminded me a lot of Lord of the Rings. Like that, that was pretty much the minds of, is it the minds of Moria? God, it's been forever since I watched that or read it. But that's what that section reminded me most of was straight up fantasy. But I mean, I feel like you can make the argument that that part of the Lord of the Rings, the, the minds of Moria, could also be horror. Just that scene. Really? I think so. I'm going to have to rewatch this with a different lens now because, oh my gosh, am I that much of a purist? Oh my God. <laughs> I think there's something there. I mean, you get all the orcs that are pretty nasty looking, chasing them through the dark. And so, yeah, similar tone in, in here. And I think part of like that all feels like it could be horror. Um, but then like in The Lord of the Rings, you've got Aragorn and the others there who are, you know, just these overpowered heroes like it's hard that help is makes it hard to feel like the stakes are super high um and similarly in the gunslinger here you have the gunslinger there and he, you know he just blows everything away um so uh that i guess while it does feel like a horror section that i guess is i wouldn't call it horror because of that right agreed so would you say overall that you think, at least for this book, the only reason people even consider it to be horror is because Stephen King is the writer? I mean, we talked about that a little bit with 112263, the whole sort of guilt by association, since that's generally what he writes. So is that the only reason you think people are looking at this novel as horror? I think so, yeah. 
I agree. I think so. I think if it was by any other name, uh, it would probably just be classified as fantasy. It's sort of like the Stephen King effect. Anything with his name on it is going to get categorized as horror by these sites or these polls just out of that. So you have to be able to wade through, okay, what part of that is just Stephen King's name that's making it horror and throw that out the window and then evaluate from there. Yeah, and it goes back to that same thing that we quoted in the 112263 episode, not to reference that super heavily, but, you know, by all means, check that out after this episode if you haven't listened to it. But there was a quote there that we talked about where he had a lady that sort of stopped him and said, you know, oh, you know, why don't you write nicer stories like that Shawshank Redemption? And, you know, he had to sit there and say, like, but I wrote that, too. That's also a thing I wrote. So he's, you know, lots of different genres. Sure, most of his work ends up being in the horror genre, but he... He has stories all over the place in all sorts of genres. So what would you say most set the tone of this book for you? I mean, it had a great opening line. Let me tell you, that was one of the best ways to start a story ever. Yeah, that really, the that opening line and kind of the opening scenes, I guess, do like it sets the tone really well. And like just the first, you know, couple paragraphs, maybe first chapter or so, like, of just kind of describing what the world's like and how, I mean, it is, it does make it feel very post-apocalyptic and, you know, what's going on with this world. I guess that, that sets it for me. Also just some of the brutality and the grit in the, uh, in the book, like, uh, especially when he, you know, kills the town of Toll, like you, before that you're, I don't know, I guess at least I, I felt, I felt differently about Roland after that point. And, uh, you know, that's not, it's not typically how I would feel about who's supposed to be the, you know, hero, I guess. So I I guess that would be a moment that maybe set the tone for me. Also, the simple fact that on StephenKing.com, like there is a glossary for this series so that you can have better context about what the characters are talking about like that was another tolkien-esque thing like there was a whole different i don't know language i guess that applied in a lot of these that set the tone for me as fantasy because as soon as i see that and like i'm learning a little bit of like a different lexicon i'm like oh this is this totally fantasy yeah, right next to the Dark Tower series on my bookshelf, I have the Dark the Dark Tower Concordance that was uh, put together by one of his main editors on the series. So like, and I refer to that a lot going through, which is kind of funny too, because sometimes I don't agree with everything that's in there, because I think it's still, while it's authorized by Stephen King, it's still a little bit that writer's um, opinion on the series. So sometimes yeah. I don't quite agree with it, but it's still... Uh, it's it's like lugging a big dictionary around. It's got so much information on the whole series in it. Yeah, I I struggle to read fantasy. I can watch fantasy better than I can read it just because, honey, if I got to learn different words, like it takes me out of the moment, just saying. I think for the future Is It Fantasy podcast that one of the... Uh, one of the elements is, is is your book able to have a compendium of terms and definitions and bloodlines made about <laughs> it? And if it's not, probably it's not fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's fair, yeah. 
I think what set the tone of this book as fantasy for me was just the slow reveal of things from all of these different times that were all matched together in this one world. Just like the anachronisticness of the whole universe was kind of what made me think, okay, this is not a real place. So like at the beginning, he's just wandering the desert and he comes across, you know, the guy in the hut. But then there's talk about, there's talk about castles, but then there's machinery, steam powered machinery. And then he goes to this old, you know, saloon, but they're playing Hey Jude. And it's just like, okay, this place isn't real. These things, this is not a real place. Obviously, this this whole series is about time also. But even before you can question that is like, where are we? So I don't know. That was not a very succinct way of putting it. But he does, uh, King does drop a lot of like little hints that keep you wondering what's going on because none of these things are like a traditional fantasy setting or a traditional like, uh, you know, medieval setting or a modern setting. It's just all over the place. So you're clearly in an, another world, a new world. The mis- mishmash of um, characters and time periods and, and all that stuff, it reminded me a lot of um, His Dark Materials, uh, The Golden Compass, that whole series, where it was, it, it gave me this vibe of like, oh, we're in a parallel universe. So maybe it's not our time or our world, but things have overlapped and have like still bled into and, and formed part of the culture that we're looking at here. It was very interesting. I personally liked the stew, but I'm just not good at reading fantasy. <laughs> Mitz, hearing you talk about that stuff, I'm, I'm so excited for you to read the rest of it. <laughs> I know I'm probably going to be even more confused, but I do, I really do enjoy the way that King does it though, because I like to have my brain jump from this, like this Western atmosphere, like we said with tall, and then he's going back in time to when he was becoming a gunslinger. And I'm imagining this like castle setting with all these servants in this great hall. And then, you know, when we hear about Jake, he's talking about growing up in the 80s. So it does keep you very engaged. (laughs) Like, it's just jumping around. I was going to say that a lot of the Dark Tower, to me, almost feels like historical fiction sometimes. And I think that that's a common theme throughout a lot of Stephen King's books, where he sort of explains real things that happened in history but explains them with horror or fantasy and i think that the dark tower kind of skirts that line a lot of times too yeah i would say that's true i think um without spoiling things any further for the ongoing series but just in this first book obviously you deal with this sort of alternate history already with roland with things that seem western but things left over from previous societies but also things that seem like you know knights and swords and sorcery sort of things but at the same time then with the 80s mixed into it with jake and this won't be the last time that you have people from different eras of places that we recognize show up in the series so it's interesting how that gets dealt with throughout the series as it goes on Uh, so i did want to deal with we already mentioned the very first line 
of the book then is the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. This is the first line, obviously, of the gunslinger, and it establishes Roland's relationship to Walter O'Dim. Roland is hunting him, and for whatever reason, Walter is running from him. The story establishes Roland as very deadly, and he's formidable, and I wanted to see, does having a main character like Roland and immediately establishing the main antagonist as running from them make it hard for this novel to be classified as horror? I, th- I think it does, and that being the opening line, it does set that tone early on. But as you get through the book and as you learn more about Walter, uh, I think it shifts a little bit, because especially when you get to the end scene, um, you know, you get, I got the feeling very much that, like, Walter didn't have to be running from Roland. He chose to run from Roland. And, you know, he, Walter's able to, you know, basically just divert him or you know what roland tries to jump on him and he just like oh let's go to sleep now like and just puts him to sleep and stuff like that so while yes at the beginning you you feel differently about it i don't know walter seems seems more formidable by the time you get to the end or at least he did to me i think there's something to that um this is probably why the slow mutant section feels like maybe that could be a little more horror is that there's actually an antagonist. You're actually sort of fearing for the characters' lives. I know that that's maybe not a hard and fast rule to classify something as horror, but I feel like it's pretty darn evident in most things that I would consider horror. I never really thought about the Man in Black running as a reason why I didn't feel like this was horror so much as I thought maybe like Roland never really being afraid kind of made me feel like it it definitely couldn't be horror because at the end of the day, he has one mission and he will do anything to get that mission complete and is to find this man in black. Uh, He would kill an entire town to do that. He would let go of Jake some, when he was like becoming closer and closer with, he didn't really ever seem like afraid of loss or death at any point. He's so kind I of guess... a sociopath about it. Like he really has yeah. no emotional <laughs> attachment to anything. And if he does, like he'll just kill it. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that he like, like I do think he feels all these feelings, but his uh, goal to catch the man in black is outweighs everything. I think, I don't know. Do we agree that Roland's the anti-hero here? I can't see him as a protagonist, at, at least just from reading this first book. I think it's hard for me to comment on that with the weight of the rest of the series in mind. I think looking at this first book, it would be easy to look at him and say he's not the hero, but I, I have too much other relationship to the character to 100% say that I can see it that way. But I think it's a good question, I guess, to get into is, does Roland feel like a hero? Does that change things? Um, I'm going to have, I would probably have to read more of the series, <laughs> honestly. Um, Roland's established capability does definitely did, like, it, it inhibited my concern for his character overall. I never felt like... I was rooting for Roland ever. I just felt like I was watching him make a series of choices that I may or may not have approved of as the reader. I was real judgy about this book when I read it. 
I'm similar to you, Steve, where it's hard for me to take this book alone. I guess I think that he is more of an anti-hero in this book, but I feel differently about the series overall. I feel like the point a lot of this first book is the idea that Roland has been alone and isolated so long that he has let a lot of his humanity go by the wayside and just allowed himself to be this killer that he was always trained to be and forgotten about the more abstract concepts of honor that were also tied up in the role that he's supposed to play as a gunslinger. Because at least as you're presented in this novel, and is true of the rest of the series, is that a gunslinger is ultimately a knight, and a knight has these moral values that they're supposed to be fighting for. But Roland was always good as the killing machine, and yeah, again, he's just allowed that to be too much of his focus over the amount of time that is hard to measure that has been behind him leading up to the beginning of the series, and so it allows him to heartlessly make these choices. And as Mitz said, I don't think that it's not... I don't think that he doesn't feel those choices. It's that he's working hard to not let them come to the forefront because he feels like they're distractions. Would you say that he's forgotten the face of his father? Yes. Yes, I would. In this instance, I think during this first story that he has, in a way, forgotten the face of his father. Damn, son. Personally, I don't think he's an anti-hero. I haven't read the other books, but I just see him as a protagonist. But that might be a biased statement because I I feel like I like him as a main character. And I think what kind of offsets the bad choices that he makes for me is the internal monologues that he always has. I mean, we we know what he thinks about Allie. We know what he thinks about Jake and they're compassionate empathetic thoughts but then he has to make a choice if he's gonna let that yeah if he's gonna let that rule him and so far he has not in the series but i but i i still like him like i i am rooting for him personally he he makes it so that you can understand that the choices that he's making are what he believes are holding the fate of the world all the worlds in balance and he kind of like he explains why he's doing the things that he's doing and how much depends on how much he believes depends on his decisions so even though there are bad things that he does it doesn't put him in the anti-hero category i think just because he's you're still sympathizing with him you still understand why he's making the decisions he's making even if they're awful ones that he sort of has to make and I will say one other thing that is interesting along with this is so, again, this is the revised version of The Gunslinger, and that there is at least one change that I can think of offhand that King made from the original version to this version to soften up Roland's character somewhat. So in this version of things, uh, the whole subplot idea that Allie has been given a trap by the man in black, that she'll say the number 19 to Nort and he will tell her what's on the other side and that it will drive her mad. That is something that was added into this. So in the original version of the novel, Roland still meets Allie, they still have their relationship, and he still ends up killing her. 
but the reason why he ends up killing her in the original novel is because he has been trained so hard to be a killer that he's basically shooting her and killing her before he has time to think about it because of everything coming at him. Whereas in this version, King gives the subplot that she's asking to be killed because she can't live with the information that she's been given. So at least in that instance, there's one example of Stephen King trying to soften Roland's character up somewhat, even though obviously he still makes some very rough choices in this book. So digging a little bit, since we're already talking about Roland's actions, Roland kills every man, woman, and child in the town of Tolls we've already talked about, and that's because it was set as a trap by the man in black that all of them would attack him at a certain point. So does the eradication of everyone in the town add to any sort of horror feeling for this novel? Like when you're reading that particular section, does it read as horror to you or is it just outside of that for whatever reason? I still think it's outside of horror, even though the, you know, the things that happened there and the descriptions of, you know, the scene of death and, you know, all of the stakes that we have invested in the people involved in that. We see the same thing in, you know, things like war movies, historical fiction, things like that. And it just, it was kind of gory, but it wasn't horror gore. It was just a mass, your, your regular run of the mill massacre, you know, just didn't have that horror flavor. Yeah, if for me, if it had a secondary flavor, it was still maybe in the fantasy realm because I, I guess the reason they're attacking like sort of feels like some sort of like magic or hypnotism that the that the man in black has on you know like Sylvia Pittston or whatever um, to to have them all attack at the same time. So it still didn't feel like horror to me. Um, just maybe maybe fantasy and like gritty western yeah i also just got western in action from that not really horror i agree okay with all that's been said yeah i would i would agree too well and i guess to take it just one more step further and to have it more personalized so we talked about the fact that um so jake dies twice in this novel uh when we're presented with him we are told that he's about 10 or 11 year old boy. Uh, we're given the graphic representation of his death by car accident when he's run over when he's in New York. And then later we get his death as Roland chooses not to save him in order to catch up with the man in black. Uh, the description of his death when he's run over is still, it's pretty graphic describing what happened to him. And then of course our main character is leaving him as a child to plummet to his death. Um, did those sections of it that a child is dying, that it's our, in one case, our main character doing it, or at least two of our main characters, the two characters referenced in the first sentence of the book, one's killing him in the first instance and the other's killing him in the other. Um, how did that affect your designation? How did you read those parts? That didn't read as horror to me because I was not afraid of it. I was sad. Like the 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 really gnarly descriptions of his death, and you know we go through medically exactly what's happening to him and what it looks like. Um, yeah, it it just bummed me out. It didn't make me feel aghast, or I did not clutch my pearls. I was just like, oh great, they they ran over a kid now. Great, that's wonderful. Yeah, the way it's described is almost clinical, um, and yeah, you know, it's just. Yeah, just sort of describing what's happening. It doesn't it doesn't feel like horror. 
and I guess part of the thing for me too is like we met Jake before the first death. So there's sort of a like, I mean, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it's it's tragic, but we also know that he's here in this world, even though he died in a different world. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess it changes the stakes a little bit. And, and you know, when he plummets to the plummets in the caves, he, you know, says, you know, there are other worlds than these, which has implications as well. So, I don't know. I feel like those are factors. I don't think that it's horror, but uh, I don't think that it's horror that Jake's death is described in that way. Um, I just do think it, I think it's setting it up for you to feel sympathy that for Jake more than anything. And, and just a side note, Stephen King does this a lot where he like very inaccurate, de- deep detail describes somebody getting horribly murdered or maimed. So I don't know. It's kind of, it was kind of par for the course for Stephen King. And I know we talked about that too in eleven twenty two sixty three when he talks about Tugga's death by sledgehammer, you know? So that was pretty graphic the way it was described and everything as well. So it wouldn't even be the first time that we've dealt with a book of his that had that kind of thing happening to a kid. So talking a little bit about the tension of the story, and we talked a little bit about how, well, I guess let me know if you disagree with this, but the idea that some of the tension of the story is undercut by the fact that Roland is so formidable, but do you also then feel like there's tension around what's going to happen to Jake? Or as you mentioned already, was there not really any tension because he's already come back from the dead once? I think there still is tension and the tension is more surrounding because Jake can feel it, right? Jake can feel that he's going to get left behind. And he asks a few times, like, don't, don't. And it instills in you that kind of like, childhood dread of like being left alone um so i do think that there there is that that feeling of tension still not because you're necessarily worried that jake is going to physically die or physically get hurt but that he is going to be emotionally hurt and left behind by roland I think that puts it pretty succinctly. That's pretty much exactly what I was going to say is just the tension is around that Jake knows it's coming. Yeah, I was pretty much going to say the same thing too. I was going to say the tension is not necessarily that he's going to die, but that Roland is going to make a choice that will basically show us where his priorities are. I mean, did anyone expect Roland to not make that choice? We spent like 30 pages going over his inner monologue about he was totally going to throw that kid under the bus. I There was a lot of moments I wasn't sure because I thought that if he was going to get rid of him, he would have done it way before he did. No, I just I just got the impression that this cold, calculating dude was just using this poor kid the entire time and he was going to off him the second that he could use him as a pawn. Like when when Jake mentions like, oh, yeah, I'm just a I think he says I'm a poker chip to you or something like that. Like the kid knew, too. It was just that was a little horrifying to me. You know, these two folks are trying to survive and clearly depend on each other for survival. And both of them know that one of them is going to kill the other the entire time. 
what about I guess how did you react to per that passage that he has where Roland is talking about maybe he should take Jake and train him and have a new group of gunslingers come up like he considers that at least for a moment uh, that didn't sway you and thinking maybe maybe it wouldn't go down like that no I just I felt like Roland was too he's just obsessed with the tower the tower just trumps everything in his life he he really has the one track focus and 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 no one matters except for that it's kind of a it Roland struck me as very cold for all of his, you know, philosophical musings throughout the entire book. He always just struck me as super cold and like almost sociopathic. I I can kind of agree and disagree with that. I think that it's very clear that he would do anything for the tower. But I also think that the story, even to his surprise, is about how difficult a decision it becomes for him to leave Jake. Because like you said, he does have several opportunities where he could just leave Jake. And I think it talks about how this was the moment that he realized that he loved the boy. And it's sort of a journey of self-discovery for him in that he's been doing this journey. He's been following the man in black to get to the dark tower. And he knows that that is why he's doing this. But then Jake is kind of his reminder of why he's doing this. And that's why it hurts him even more to drop him. I feel. I just think that all of Roland's relationships, at least the way that they were presented in this particular book shows me that the only interactions he has with people is to serve himself. There is nothing that is empathetic or giving or good about him. He's just on a mission following the rules to get to the end goal of that mission. And that's definitely where you're supposed to meet the character and the struggle that he faces during the early part of the whole series is the idea of not just using people as poker chips, but that they're more than that to him. And so I think that is interesting to see that development throughout the series, not to spoil anything that's coming, but um, they even tell you in the, in Golgotha, there was the man in black is reading his fortune that the idea is that he'll have other people coming and how he treats them initially and how he treats them as the series goes on. And it's, I even read the quote there from wolves of the Kala where you have Eddie and Susanna talking to him. And I think Eddie is probably an interesting character as he comes up later. Cause he does tend to call Roland on this information a lot later is basically to say like, you are a junkie for the dark tower and you are treating people horribly with your intent to get there. And so I, I think, that's the thing that's really fun about the series for me is the journey of watching Roland's character shift as time goes on. Does he redeem himself? I mean, I feel like he does. I mean, your your mileage may vary if you decide to read through the rest of the series. But yeah, I think that it's about finding him in this cold place. And I, like I said, I think that's valid to view it that way. But that there are glimmers of hope for him as a person and they're going to continue to have those threads pulled as the series goes on. I yeah, would say... Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to do a little side note of it's really hard to not talk, to not dig into some of the rest of the series. So maybe we'll have to do a Dark Tower series talk discussion at some point. Oh my God, that's eight books. That's going to take me three years. I have ADD, guys. You can't do this to me. All right. It's planned for season seven. <laughs> there you go. Season seven, the Dark Tower, finally. <laughs> Brianna caught up. I was just going to say that without really spoiling anything, I think it's pretty clear throughout the rest of the series that dropping Jake was one of his bigger regrets. Definitely. I mean, I don't even see him as a cold person, though, during the book. He makes a, a lot of questionable decisions, but overall, he's pretty morally gray. I think there are several opportunities for him to be a cold person in the book that he doesn't take. Like, he didn't even have to bring Jake with him the first time around when he found him in the in town. But now he's like, well, now I gotta take care of this freaking kid. Um, I don't know. I just... I, I think there's a lot of nuance in his actions. And I never really thought he was a, like, evil character. I, that's a strong word. But to me, he he's doing what he believes is the greater good, right? And I don't think that when he dropped Jake, that was what he he wanted to do. But he was either that or lose the tower. I don't know. Yeah, sacrifice one to save a hundred. Yeah, and I, I definitely think there's that element to it for sure. Is that a wanted reference? Mm, if it was, it wasn't intentional. <laughs> so I guess the other character that is a big part of this to talk about too is the man in black, Walter O'Dim. Does he feel like a horror character himself, even if the story he's in isn't horror? I say no. No, yeah. He he reminded me of one of those goth kids in high school who just wouldn't shut up about philosophical rantings. Like, I kind of followed what he was saying sometimes, but not all the time, and mostly he just wanted to fuck with your head. That's the impression I got of his character. When I, I was listening to this kind of with a new light, his little rant there, and it almost made me like see him as like the good guy in a way like see some good in him because like i i hadn't read this in a long time and i was thinking of him in a different light and then when he when i paid closer attention to this little like rant that he gives it was almost like is he the bad guy or is he also just doing what he thinks needs to be done to serve the greater good like Roland is, and both of them just have different perceptions of what the greatest good is. I don't think there is a bad guy in this book. I think that everyone just has various shades of, like, morality. I mean, that's pretty common in fantasy, though. That's why we have, like, the D&D &D chart of alignment. <laughs> There's, like, this interesting moment with the two of them there at the end where after after Roland has the vision and the man in black is like, what did you see in the light? And then Roland realized he's like actually asking because Walter doesn't know. And it feels like this sort of like, it puts them, at least in my mind, it puts them on the same playing field 
where before, like at the beginning of the book, you're like, oh, you know, Roland's chasing him. Then at the beginning of the Golgotha scene, you're like, oh, Walter's really powerful and can just like put Roland to sleep. But then like you get that little conversation and they're suddenly on the same field. And like I can definitely see that like idea of like they're both they're coming at it different ways, but they're both maybe kind of in search of the same thing. I think there's definitely other aspects later in the series that indicate that in some ways they have the same goal, both of them to get to the tower, obviously for different motivations. But um, I do see Walter as maybe not the main antagonist of this series. He's more like the uh, MacGuffin almost of most of the book until you meet up with him. He's the thing that drives the plot forward more than he's any more than he's the villain of the story in a way. But uh, I do think that he is, I don't know if I'd go straight to evil in his, in his description, but I wouldn't say that he's a good guy. I think that he's a bad guy. I think he's far worse than, than Roland is in a lot of his ways. But uh, yeah, I don't know that I'd say that he's a horror character either, but I think maybe part of that is because, while he's not a good person, I wouldn't say that he does anything ever that feels particularly like sinister or approaching trying to be scary in it. I think the worst decisions, the hardest decisions made in the story end up being made by Roland more than Walter. Walter kind of sets things up and allows Roland's character to take over. And that's the way, the reason that bad things happen. So I guess with that it's hard for me to see him as a horror character as well. I think he's more of a horror character in The Stand than he is in this. I would agree with that. Agree. Walter O'Dim did remind me of another antagonist in a Stephen King story. Has anybody ever seen um, Storm of the Century, I think it's called? The character's last name is Linoge, and he he's kind of this old ancient wizard who sort of moves through time and causes mild chaos wherever he goes that i saw a little bit of a parallel there but maybe that was just because you know stephen king character no i think there's something to that the thing about um walter odim the man in black he goes by a lot of different names and they put more of a fine point on it as the series goes on but at least since we've already mentioned the stand uh randall flag is Walter O'Dim, is the man in black, is Martin. So they are one and the same. They're all the same person. Correct. And for the most part, with the exception of Gwendy's button box, if you meet a mysterious character with the initials RF, then it is this character. So what is he? Is that ever revealed, like overall in, in the universe of Stephen King? There's some things that are revealed, but I guess that kind of leads into the next point is the idea that the Dark Tower series has a lot of mysteries. We are dealing with an eight book series. This is the shortest in it. There are a lot of questions given, not necessarily many answers. Walter O'Dim, while you do see basically what happens with him, he's still in and of himself very much a mystery as well. So it's you never get a full grasp on exactly who he is, but in some ways he is Stephen King's the devil character throughout his various works. 
And yet he continually alludes to like a, th a power that is greater and more evil than him. It's Cthulhu. <laughs> I'm sorry, those little minions down in with the pushcart thing. Come on, they had tentacles. Come on, it's it's our Lord Cthulhu. Just admit it. I mean, I could spoil it for you after the podcast. <laughs> Please do. I love me some spoilers. But I guess just to dig into that, because I think that there's this theme within this book, too, at least to some degree of some sort of existential dread that you're dealing with and existential horrors, uh, maybe cosmic horrors might be the better way to put it. So did the idea that there are these mysteries that you don't have answers to lead towards it? Because I know horror so much of the time has this idea of uh, if you explain too much, it stops feeling like horror. If you explain all the whys and wherefores, how everything works then that takes away from that. But if you leave the mysteries there, if you leave the uncertainty there, then it doesn't allow your reader, your viewer, whoever's partaking of the story to ever get fully comfortable with it. So does this novel do a good job of leaving those mysteries there, leaving them enticing, maybe some of them unnerving? I don't know if I was unnerved by all of the unanswerables in this book um i was frustrated by it though <laughs> like i i'm not one who believes that you have to leave all the things out in order for a thing to be horrifying i think that you need to determine that that thing is not controllable or defeatable and that's horrifying it's the loss of control that's horrifying for me the unanswered questions didn't make me feel like it was horror but it was very in terribly intriguing i suppose <laughs> uh just uh for me yeah like every time like i feel like i had a, a feeling of what the world was supposed to be like oh this is a western oh just kidding there's like an old like mechanical water pump like why is that there why are they singing hey jude like you know all these things were just there were questions I wanted answers to. And at least in this book, you don't get many answers to those. And it just, for me, it just made me want to read more. I guess it's sort of unrelated, but sort of related is that I can tell that probably one of the things that was rewritten is how much detail uh, was in Roland's backstory of specific things that like Cuthbert and Elaine did and Court did or things like that. Um, so I, I think that it's cool, uh, like in the overall story, how in the very first book, there's like this, all the super specific stuff that he talks about that you see later on in the store, in the series. And I was kind of forgetting that he had rewritten the first book and probably had included all that stuff so that it better fit into the world later on. But I do like reading a good series where you can tell that there was planning from the very beginning to the very end. I think for me, this series has the sort of right blend of um, mystery, but also feeling like there's probably answers if you keep digging into it. Now, granted, not all of those answers always end up being satisfying, there are some things that the man in black says in his palaver with Roland at the end that have very obvious payoffs and very soon even. And then there are other things that are left 
mysterious even after finishing the entire series where I have to sit and say, well, I'm not exactly sure what he meant by this even now. And at least one of the mysteries surrounding that is exactly who the man in black has been throughout the series. Now, obviously, what I described earlier, I feel like there's at least a fairly obvious intent for the man in black to have been Martin, for him to have been Flag and other RF characters that get mentioned throughout this series. But that even being said, the last time I read through the Dark Tower series, or actually a couple times ago that I read through the Dark Tower series, I put together a whole Google spreadsheet where I mentioned every time they say who the man in black is or isn't, and whether it was positive or negative for various characters that he was supposed to be. And uh, it's funny looking through it and just seeing, okay, yeah, this one obviously he is, and this one obviously he's not. But for almost every character, you can find something where it confirms that he is another character, and you can find something where it confirms that he's not that same character. So it's always a little bit uncertain, but yeah, I guess that's what ends up being so tantalizing about this series. So rather than adding to a horror feel with the existential terror or these cosmic mysteries i think it just allows me to dig deeper but it doesn't give me a horror vibe exactly so i guess my next big question for anyone who hasn't read through this before maybe who hasn't finished it does this does this make you interested to continue on the series regardless of the horror genre or not um is this a series you think you're going to continue with nope i'm gonna have you spoil it for me after this episode <laughs> I'm probably going to reread the whole series, and to my brother's shame, I never did finish reading the seventh book, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> oh, shame, ding ding, shame. <laughs> yeah, I think I will continue. Uh, it's right up my alley. I love fantasy and I love historical fiction, so this is a good amalgamation of that. Does Jake come back? Like, does Jake get thrown into another reality and we get to see him again? Like, does he get to bitch slap Roland for dropping him? Because I feel like that's owed to Jake. Oh, I feel like that's going to have to be an after the podcast thing. <laughs> well, now I know the answer. Now I want to know, but I, I cannot commit to read eight, read eight books. Forget it. No, it's not going to happen. I can barely get through the first Lord of the Rings novel. Like, no. This will be probably my third or fourth time through uh and i'll probably have this kickstart my next run of them because uh, uh, the the series is i i really like it so i mean i've already read it but yeah i guess i'll be continuing with it to answer the question <laughs> yeah same i'll probably be reading through it again now that i finished with this first book so so one other thing I guess I wanted to make mention of, and we're not necessarily going to dig deep into it again because this can be sort of spoiler territory, is it's no coincidence that we're releasing this both on the 19th of May and that it's our 19th episode. Uh, 19 is an important number in this series, and the reason why and exactly what its meaning is is a bit debatable, but uh, at least to say that you're introduced to it here in the series with Allie being given that as this number that will unlock Nort telling her what he saw on the other side. And then if you happen to read the physical novel, there is a foreword by Stephen King that talks about the concept of 19, at least in some degree. 
But uh, yeah, I don't necessarily want to spoil what's coming, but just to basically to say like it is a number that comes up a lot and has numerous sort of coincidence and somewhat helps our characters in predicting some of the things that they can expect and some of the ways that they can get out of trouble. But um, yeah, for anyone who's read the series before, you know, and for those that haven't, well, there's there's more to come on that front as well. But I figured it would maybe be better not to spoil exactly what I think that it means or what we all think it means, but just that it is important to the series. And uh, I wanted to see if anybody had any other thoughts, either relating to the genre or just the book in general. Justice for Jake, that's all I'm worried about. <laughs> I really liked the end um, scene in Golgotha when they're talking about, you know, the problem scale. And we kind of already touched about on that a little bit. But it's something I've thought a lot about on the... Um, like large scale, like looking up at the stars at night and just like feeling how small we are. But then I hadn't ever maybe really considered the the other the other way, like how if you go the other way, how small everything gets, or you know, just you know, microscopic, like the tip of a pencil is not actually solid and that kind of thing. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's really well written and it's really uh, intriguing and thought provoking for me. And I, that's maybe what, uh, like I liked the book the first time I read it, but that scene is maybe what sold me on, um, sold me on the series. And I was like, okay, well, this is the thought process through these. I'm definitely reading more. I really liked that part, too. If you can get back past the pretentiousness of it, then it's a very, very good part of the book. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's funny hearing Stephen King just talk about this novel and the reason that he wanted to rewrite it. And obviously some of it was because he wanted it to be more in line with what the series, how the series ended. But also him talking about how he could see his younger writer self kind of as maybe not using that specific word, but honestly, the way he described it as being a bit pretentious and having some of these lofty sort of literary aspirations while writing it and trying to, you know, make sure he's hitting all of these points to write the great American novel kind of thing. And uh, him sort of being like, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm less concerned with that. And I mostly just want to tell a good story. And so him cleaning up a little bit of that and the writing style changing over the course of it. Because like I said, the first the first part of The Gunslinger was published in 1978. The final book was published in 2003. So that's quite a long span for him to evolve as a writer. And of course, as we are all probably well aware, Stephen King wrote a hell of a lot of books in between then. So it's not like this was just the only thing he was doing. So even he as a writer acknowledges that some of what he was doing in this first novel was a bit pretentious. <laughs> and I think the other thing I guess to just mention along with that too, for those following along at home and for those here, I think that at least for me anyway, as much as I do enjoy the first novel, The Gunslinger, that I think that the drawing of the three, the second Dark Tower book, is a much better representation of what the series is like as a whole. Good, because I just ordered it. <laughs> it's coming on nice. Wednesday. Good. All right, any other thoughts on, uh, you know, The Gunslinger, the Dark Tower series as a whole, Stephen King? 
I would just like to say that I really enjoy how pretty much all of Stephen King's novels are telling one big story and how the Dark Tower series, like the Dark Tower itself, is sort of at the nexus of those worlds and those stories. And if you've ever read Stephen King novels and you like them and you've read several of them, uh, reading The Dark Tower will sort of tie things together in a very neat bow that you may find uh, satisfying and entertaining. I agree. I think it adds a lot of context to a lot of his work. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up this episode for today. Uh, thanks again for joining us on another episode of Is It Horror? If you want to support us, one of the best ways you can do that is just to recommend this podcast to anybody else. I know it seems like it's a pretty common thing these days for people to ask if you've listened to any good podcasts lately. So, uh, yeah, if you like what you've been listening to and you feel like you can recommend us, please do so. That would help us out a lot. And uh, otherwise, join us back here in two weeks where we will be talking about the movie Seven. <gasps> We're finally doing Seven? Yes. <laughs> Oh my god, you just made my month. That's awesome. <laughs> and I have still been Steve. And I have still been Brianna. And I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Mitz. You say true, I say thank you. Bye. 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 Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Go then, there are other worlds than these. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Is It Horror Pod, or you can email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself Is It Horror?